And we're back at the Bait and Switch Podcast Studios, burning the midnight oil, doing some introductions for our podcasts. Tonight's guest is Tom Schuler. Tom is a retired professional cyclist. As you might have gathered from some of our past episodes, some of these podcasts have been cycling-centric. I am a member of a cycling group called the Tosa Spokesman, and through that group, I became familiar with Tom. As chance would have it, I met Tom about 15 years ago when our wives worked on a project together. Not being a huge cycling enthusiast myself, I learned a lot from this interview, and I hope you do too. As always, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast feeds. In addition, you can find us at baitandswitchpodcast.com, our new website, and of course through our Facebook page, Bait and Switch Podcast. We appreciate all of our listeners, and if you like what you're hearing, please pass us along to your friends. Your podcast starts now. Hola, bienvenidos. This is Richard Wilson. With this podcast, there are no electives. Every program is a prerequisite. The semester is in session. It's season two of the Bait and Switch podcast. And we're back at the Bait and Switch podcast. Tonight's guest is Tom Schuler. Now, you might remember Tom from our Tour de France preview podcast of this year. He's a local Milwaukee cycling legend. He raced professionally in cycling. And uh, our shows are not particularly topical. We don't talk about current events, but one that we do is the Tour de France preview podcast. And I want to get a little bit into the podcast that we did that night. And this will just be a brief thing. He said something during the podcast that turned out to be very prescient. I left it out of the podcast, and I'm going to play a little snippet for him and uh, our listeners here in just a second. You left it out because you had no faith. I didn't think it was that big a deal. I will introduce Tom in just a second, but I'm first going to play a clip of what Tom said that night that I snipped out. Okay, uh, next up is Quick Step. Yeah, Quick Step, um, you know, they're the winningest team this year, winning most team, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Philippe, I think, has won nine or ten races this year. He's certainly their flash. Um, he may go for the, the uh, Mountains jersey or he may go for stages. He may educate, you know, learn more about riding for GC this year. And uh, let, me, let me stop you right there. <laughs> Do you think Al Philippe will? I'll throw this out there. Will Will Julian Al Philippe ever be a GC contender? I don't think he will. I think he's too flashy a rider. He likes going in the breaks and doing fun like attacks and attacks down descents and everything. And his time trialing isn't the strongest. And I think he's happy where he is now as the guy who wins the one day races or a bunch of stages. Yeah, it's just curious because every now and then there's a guy like this, like, hey, seems like he can climb pretty well. Uh, but then can he make that transition from climbing hills to climbing mountains? He did He did win the Tour of California a couple of years, three or four years ago. Um, but, but yeah, that, I mean, you know, that's what, nine days versus uh, versus three weeks. Right, right. Yeah, he, um, but he will get the latitude within that right. team. On, on their roster, he probably will be their... They're protected rider for GC. Right. 
I just played a clip where Tom predicted that Julian L. Fleep would be Quick Step's GC rider for the tour and that he might be a GC rider for the tour, which nobody was saying. So, Tom, where did you get that information? So I'm happy to be here, you guys. Again, yeah, thank welcome. you for this yeah, opportunity. Thanks, welcome. Thanks for coming yeah. in. <laughs> but uh, thank you for that praise and that lucky guess, I mm -hmm. guess. So certain riders have that ambition, and it's too early to tell on someone like Al Philippe. And it turned out he'd probably done all the preparation, and he said, if, this, if I get there, I'm going to go for it. And really what we saw was um, a step – along a possible Grand Tour winner. You know, it's funny because I was the one in the clip that was skeptical and said, now hold on, do you think this guy can really be GC? And again, I think as well as he did, I think he's probably going to stay a one-day rider. He ended up getting fifth. He did quite well. A lot of people said that this was one of the best tours in years. You agree with that? It was very open. Uh, that's what we want. We want a fair race. We didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but you got the other factor you have to remember about Al Philippe and any Frenchman. This is not the Tour de France is not just any old stage race to them. Right. This is the world's biggest race, and they're a French rider. So you know they'll do anything they can to turn themselves into a potential tour rider. And after two or three cracks, this may be as close as Al Philippe ever gets to winning the Tour de France. Yeah. Now, the reason we're talking about this, I did reference this earlier. Tom Schuler was a professional bike rider. Let's start at the beginning. Where did your cycling career start? I grew up in Detroit. We had a strong cycling racing program through the Wolverine Sports Club. We had a velodrome. So I think when I was about 14, I got hooked in with uh, the Wolverine Sports Club just because I enjoyed riding my bikes with friends. We'd ride around Lake Huron, go into Canada. I don't know how my parents let us do that <laughs> back then. Overnight trips for eight days with, uh, you know, 50 bucks in our pocket or something. <laughs> and we had a strong racing program in Detroit, so I just really enjoyed the competitive aspects. My last year of high school, I was kind of having some success, and I, I said, you know, I could do something with this. Cycled through college. Kept racing on the national team. What about, you just said Indiana. What about uh, breaking away? Did you ever race that race depicted in the movie? No, I never. We, you, uh, essentially, you had to go to the University of Indiana. Okay. Uh, I've, no, I've never seen it. It's on my bucket list. I want to go check that thing out. The, the, it's the Little Indy 500. Yeah, Little, right? 500. little 500. And uh, I've known lots of people I raced with that were on, went to IU uh, and, and did that thing. And it's, it's quite an event. It's bringing cycling, bringing bike races to the public, which is what we just did here at the Tour of America's Dairyland in Wauwatosa on North Avenue. You yeah. bring yep. bike racing to the public. When did you get involved with the national team and, and things like that? Um, as a, uh, you know, once I turned senior to race on an, get an invite to a national team trip, my first trip uh, was up in Montreal. And then um, I think I ended up fourth in that race. Um, with this some international in the, in the 70s maybe I would or? have been 18 or 19 yeah it would have been like 75 so you know it's just on and on then you get invited for to other trips and this was before we had a professional class in America so if you wanted to make it to the Olympics or make it to the highest level in in bike racing mm -hmm. in this country you were an amateur so the Olympics okay. were the pinnacle the world championships so that was until 
the 7-Eleven team then started in, for me in 81, and then that group turned professional in 85. Now we had a team, the 7-Eleven team, that went off to Europe as a team, as an American team. So that was kind of a game changer Were you in 85. In 85. Were you involved in the Olympics at all? Yeah, so I was um, an alternate on the 76 team, and then I was on the 80 team that boycotted, if you remember that, the oh, yeah. Moscow Hops Olympics. Moscow. Mm-hmm. How difficult was that for you to... So it wasn't, it wasn't at the time, it wasn't really that hard on us because, on me, because um, I had ambitions beyond the Olympics, which were a professional career. So I was thinking in that direction. A gymnast, like if your best years were 1980 as a gymnast, there is no professional gymnastics. You're done. Right. Right. Sure. Uh, An athlete that didn't have a a career opportunity. After 80, I had 10 strong years where I got paid to race my bike. Um, those opportunities didn't exist for swimmers, gymnasts, and maybe you only, you know, you weren't in 84, you weren't at your peak anymore. Do you sure, know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. a lot of people did get their opportunity taken away. In hindsight, I would have liked to have competed in Moscow. So yeah. it's a, yeah. It, yeah. It, it was something that happened. Then in 84, I was an alternate again. I, I think I should have been on that team, but there was a little uh, a little blood doping going on within within the sport. So I right, was, I remember that. I was I was uh, sort of a, a victim of that to a certain degree. Uh, in '84, you said you had started with 7-Eleven in '81. Wouldn't that preclude you from doing so, the Olympics in '84 um, at that point? So it's a very good question. So every sport, every Olympic sport, decided how they were going to integrate their professionals into the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, some sports integrated, I think tennis integrated earlier. Sure. Cycling didn't integrate till 96, which is Atlanta. So okay. Frank okay. Andreu, Lance Armstrong, I was retired by then. But all those professionals were able to ride in Atlanta. So mm. the, all the best cyclists in the world were in Atlanta because we were fully integrated, had integrated the professional sport into the Olympics until that year. So in 92 was Barcelona. Lance Armstrong was our top guy. He was in quote, amateur. Right. Mm-hmm. But whether or not you're, quote, an amateur or a professional, athlete, amateur athletes were allowed to get paid going back to whenever someone wanted to pay them. And that's the mm-hmm. Amateur Sports Act of, of 1978 that Frank Shorter, the runner, helped pen. And it, it basically, you can be an amateur and still get money because okay. basically the Russians, the East Germans were all, quote, amateurs mm-hmm. and they were being they paid. paid. Sure. So that's that... Um, so the the uh, so I started getting paid when the Seven Eleven team started in eighty one. It was very paltry salary, but at the right. time it was the best. It was the best paying cycling gig in America. That's amazing. I mean, that's that's really cool. So you were part of that very first Seven Eleven team that started. That's that's awesome. You got to be a that's lot of cool. pride with being a pioneer over in Europe with American sure. cyclists. Yeah, and, and and I I sort of backed off the the European stuff because um, my wife and I started having a family in about eighty eighty six was our first child, so I sort of pulled back from the European. We went to Europe as professionals in eighty five. We rode the Giro. I was the, uh, that was our first Grand Tour. I was on that team, and then our our first child was born in eighty six. So I we were being asked to move to Europe. You know, and oh, okay. I wasn't ready to do much, that. So yeah. I stayed with the team, and I worked with the younger riders, continued to race mostly domestically. 
right. uh, through the, through the end of my career in 90. And then 7-Eleven morphed into Motorola, right? Yeah, that's correct. I stayed with the team, and that's when I retired, and I stayed in a management role with the team. I was the assistant general manager to Jim Okowitz for a couple of years. And Jim Okowitz is a local uh, Milwaukee guy. Yeah, Jim grew up um, in New Berlin, was a two-time Olympian on the track, on the velodrome, uh, was a teammate of mine. Uh, on a team that predated 7-Eleven called AMF. It was Jim Okowitz, myself, Eric Hyden, Beth Hyden, um, some other speed skaters. That was sort of the roots of the 7-Eleven team because we were all from here. Right. So I was actually living in Chicago at the time. Eric Hyden was a biker? Yeah. Well, he he used cycling as training, and he always wanted to do more. Okay. So after 80, when he retired, Mm -hmm. he dedicated a few years to cycling just to see what he could do. Sure. It makes sense. I mean, his legs are built for it, for sure. So he he always used cycling in his training. Uh Uh-huh. Um, he was very uh, uh, advanced in all his training. Okay. And it was a lot of fun to go to a, a bike race anywhere around the country with Eric Hyden as your teammate. He just won five gold medals. Right. He was yeah. the star, year, yeah. You know, six months prior. Yeah, right. Can you, can you imagine what that's like at every bike race? It was a, it, yeah. He was a big draw. Yeah, and obviously yeah. that's one of the reasons they hired him, right, for publicity. That was, a, a, you know, the, the catalyst for the whole team. And the other name we mentioned, Jim Oknovitz, how do you say his name? Jim Okowitz, yeah. Okowitz, for people that are not familiar with professional cycling, a guy here right from the Milwaukee area is really one of the big names in cycle racing in Europe. He is uh, one of the team directors, one of the team owners. Yeah, essentially a team owner. Um, your directors are the coaches on the you know that are essentially – uh, calling the plays and or in the cars. Jim rarely does that. Uh, he he can he can do his job from uh, his home in Cal- in Park City. He can do his from his home in Belgium, or he can be at the race. But he doesn't need to be in the car calling the plays or doing the strategy the night before. Those are the directors. But he's the he's the owner of the team, just like Patrick Lefevre. Um, just like Trek is a different structure. Trek is a good example. Trek Segafredo is owned by Trek. So the title sponsor owns the team, oh, okay. lock, stock, and barrel. You know, most bike companies are just a sponsor of the team, and the franchise is owned by the Jim Okowitzes, the Patrick Lefevers. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the names you mentioned uh, earlier was Lance Armstrong, who is the uh, most prominent name in cycling. And obviously, his name is tied to the problems that he had regarding doping. Uh, did you run into any of that during your career? So, oh, yeah, I mean, when from the day, if you're a cyclist, you're going to run into, doping's going to be around. You're going to see it. Um, when I was an amateur racing in Belgium in 77 and 78, so I would have been 20 and 21, you could see it uh, in the changing rooms of people huh. administering doping to their their 19-year-old kids, their 20-year-old wow. kids. You mean parents, even? Parents. Really? Parents, absolutely. When, you, when we talk about doping, has the definition changed over the years? Like, it used to be performance-enhancing drugs, but then they also talk about uh, oxygenating blood, right, and giving, like, blood transfusions with more oxygen. Is it the same? Is it under the same umbrella? Is it the same thing? Or So the oxygenating blood, there's different ways you can do it. You can go to altitude, mm-hmm. like if you and I drove to Colorado, We'd be at six thousand feet at Denver and ten thousand feet at in Breckenridge. Okay, and our blood is going to thicken, or we're going to grow red blood cells. That's okay because that happens in in nature. Okay, they also allow 
to simulate that through a hyperbaric chamber oh, where you can sleep okay. in a oxygen depleted uh, chamber mm-hmm. and your body will compensate by by growing more red blood cells okay the what's blood doping is when you artificially inject something into your body to increase your red blood cell count you can oh, re-in- okay. re-inject your own red blood cells that you've taken out uh-huh. and stored that's blood doping that's okay. or you oh, can use a drug okay. which the common name is called EPO which um, artificially or gets your body to stimulates your body to, to produce more red blood cells so okay. there's you know as we've moved <clears throat> along the spectrum when when uh, there was a you know the authorities in cycling decided they want to crack down on doping mm-hmm. more than just sort of a a wink at at what's going on you know cyclists were dying cyclists were dying oh, from yeah. thickening their blood too much and sure. uh, having in, strokes in, just mm. before i got it started in europe cyclists professional cyclists were dying from amphetamine overdose okay you know, mm-hmm. too much amphetamine so the cycle was sort of uh you know i want to I, I like to say uh, 70s was amphetamines 80s was steroids and 90s and beyond were blood products and hopefully there's not something new on the horizon that we don't know about sure you know i'm certainly not an expert people that are in the peloton now would would tell you i think the same thing but to survive in the sport you need to be clean now sure you need to be a clean manager you need to be clean management and you need to be a clean rider mm-hmm. the there's too many ways you'll get caught and there's too many risks to not only yourself to be banned Mm-hmm. but to your team to lose it to end its sponsorship oh, people sure. are still getting caught there's always some false positives mm-hmm. um, but those are rare and but people are still doing things to get ahead but sure. generally there was a time when if you weren't doping in the professional peloton i don't know when the apex was could have been certainly around lance armstrong's time mm-hmm. that if you weren't doping you were odd yeah okay and now if you yeah. are doping you're odd and you're you're outside the the, the norms. Back right. then, if you weren't doing something, you were outside the norms. And you probably weren't making it, right? I mean, to, you know, because you, you weren't, weren't exactly it because you couldn't compete with you, those it guys. It was very. You know? I mean, yeah. especially when the blood products came along. Sure, that was a game changer. You're talking amphetamine steroids. You're talking about two, three, four percentage points. You get into blood products, it's like ten percent. Wow. Really? Because I mean, okay. oxygen is how you fuel the muscles. You know. You, oh sure, sure. You need oxygen to. To fuel the muscles, and if you can all of a sudden increase your oxygen carrying capacity by a significant amount, and that's what was happening when this the blood products came out. Mm-hmm. The basic premise was: is some is good, more is better. Right. Mm-hmm. So they were thickening their blood to where okay. uh, cyclists were their blood was so thick they were dying of a heart attack in their sleep. You know, when, you're, uh, when, you're, your, blood can't when your, uh, your heart rate has dropped to like 32 or whatever, sure. it's just like sludge. And that, wow. they, had, they had multiple heart attacks of, of young cyclists in their sleep. There were stories of cyclists getting up in the middle of the night to, to you know, move it around. And, to move it around. Yeah, yeah. Just absolutely. Keep, keep going, yeah. You know, this all was going on in the sort of in the, in the 90s. You know, that was okay. the, the peak, and um, you know, that was certainly during Lance's era. So that was the environment he was uh, he was racing in. I think okay, one sure. thing people don't really think about as much, cycling gets a black eye because of this. I think largely because they're not unionized and they get caught a little bit more. But I always say 
to anybody that says, oh, cycling can be a dirty sport, I say your, your favorite Packer, Badger, Brewer, Buck is taking something. A guy gets caught in baseball or football, they say four-game suspension. You get caught oh, cycling or eight-game yeah, yeah. or 12-game. or it's, it's more For baseball, it's more than that. I mean, it's like, What's I, first-time I, offense? What's that? I think it's 50 now. Okay. I think it's cycling. It's two or three years. Two years. Yeah. And I think more than that. Nowadays, when you've when you're caught and you've served a two year suspension, you come back as damaged goods. Okay. As a baseball player, if you get a, even a fifty game suspension, your team's still going to take you back. Right. Sure. You're you know, yeah. in cycling, a you lost your contract. Your salary went from large to zero. If you were a star rider. A lot of teams aren't going to even take a chance on you anymore. Yep, you're right. too you're too big of a risk. The difference is, you've put uh, most teams. I think have a a payroll of like eighty people. Okay, you put eighty people's jobs at risk. <sighs> yeah, right. And so that's where it is absolutely turned for the young cyclists. Now they realize the stakes, and they kind of all say, "Hey, we really never wanted to." Dope in the first place. Right. Sure. We just had to to keep to if we want to be if we wanted to keep up, we'd rather not put this stuff in our body. We know mm-hmm. it's not good for it. Everyone knows it's not good for you yep. to manipulate your chemistry. But if you wanted if you had the ambition and the and the the uh, skills, right. I mean it was only the best cyclists that got the opportunity to uh, be invited to a pro team where then doping was probably introduced to him. It was only the best amateurs that yeah. became the best pros, and along the way they might have doped back in that era. Mm-hmm. But so they were already all, already the best cyclists of their generation, mm-hmm. but they still had to do it, keep up. They didn't want to do it. They yeah. just they wanted to be try sure. to win the Tour de France. You know, right. Completely different now. You take Al Philippe, all these young guys, no way. There's no yeah. way. It's it's for themselves, the sport, um, and they're – they're not desired if they're going to go down that path. Do you think that cycling, I don't want to say overcompensated, but they, they went like, okay, we're definitely, we're going to make sure that this is just out of our sport completely 100% because to, to, in a way to kind of build up their reputation again. Um, the risk factors of doping in different sports are, are one thing, mm-hmm. but the performance enhancement advantages of certain doping techniques are different in each sport. Mm. And in aerobic sports um, and in strength sports, um, you you get a big advantage from either the steroid-based things or the oxygen-carrying things. Cycling is kind of both. You need oh, the sure. power and strength, and you need aerobics. Mm-hmm. Your running is almost a pure aerobic sport. Okay, There's not yeah. that much strength involved, but you know, cycling is power is all it's all about power and blood to the ox to the muscles mm-hmm. so cycling the advantage of doping is significant in cycling i mean again you couldn't compete without it right. at, at a certain era mm-hmm. to your question i think um I, I think cycling thought it was the only way forward for survival mm-hmm. because in germany for instance the television they stopped watching the they start stop broadcasting the tour de france after oh, the, really? the terrible doping stuff. Okay. Um, we never did in this country, but they stopped. Networks start uh, broadcasting. It's back now. Yeah. So evidence, this year's Tour de France, it was exciting. It was clean. Right. There was no talk about doping because everyone believes there's not doping going on. There will be those outliers. There will be those cases. But right. you are you are run out of the sport today if you're doping because it's it, we've, we've seen what happens when – 
that you go through a, a terrible doping phase, the sport is going to die. The yeah. sport's going to die. Yep. So I think cycling realizes it's the only way forward is clean, and where mm-hmm. they're going to do everything they can to keep it that way. And it starts from the attitudes of the riders. It starts with sure. what I was talking about when I was 18 and 19 and racing in Belgium, and I saw it. It starts at that level where the parents know if this kid's going to be a professional, he has to do it clean like everyone else. Right. That's where it not if this kid's going to be a professional, he's got to start doping now, just like every other nineteen year old. Sure. Yeah, so, so it's, a, it's a complete attitude change, and that takes a generation or two to oh, happen. Yeah. You know, cycling is so sponsor uh, dependent that these companies don't want to be associated with it, and so they pull their sponsorships. Whereas baseball has many more streams of revenue, and so yeah. if yep. they get a black eye. They're still getting commercials. They're still getting airtime. They're still yep. getting people showing up in the stadiums. Yeah. Uh, cycling is very de- uh, dependent on their sponsorships. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And the one thought on that is, when I started in the sport, there was no such thing because I uh, was was around a lot of the sponsor contracts. Being on the management side, there was never something called a morals clause or an ethics clause. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, every rider has a morals ethics clause, and every management company like Jim Okowitz has a serious morals ethics clause which means the sponsor can pull out at any time with a doping infraction right. sure every right. sponsorship contract right. well anyway yeah. uh, I want to wrap up here the first half and uh, we will be back next week for the second half or here in the studio in about five minutes for the second half okay talk to you soon Join us next time on the Bait and Switch podcast for the conclusion of our interview with former professional cyclist Tom Schuler. You've made it to the end of yet another Bait and Switch podcast. Spread the word.